We're going to be back in Luke chapter 17 today. If you have a Bible, please find your way so that we can dig into the Word together. And I want to share with you a message that I've titled, Shifting Disciples Out of Selfie Mode. Let me give you just a little bit of a background to help you understand kind of what I'm talking about with that. Kind of a humorous story. This is out of the news. read this in Fox 8, the local news station, uh, by the way. But a mom in New Mexico just last month went viral for her videography skills. Or, Or we might even say that it was her lack thereof that caused her to go viral in this popular sensation on the internet. You you see, Susan Grigo had been asked by her daughter Amber's long-term boyfriend, Ben Bacon, he he had asked her for uh, her daughter's hand in marriage. And the two of them kind of hatched this plan together so that they might surprise Amber with a proposal at the Albuquerque Biopark. And so the plan was that Susan would use her phone and the, and the camera that was on her smartphone to video this couple near the penguin exhibit of that biopark while Ben would then pop the question to Amber. Well, when that moment came, Susan tried to get her phone's camera up and running, but, but things didn't work as she hoped. And so she asked for her daughter's camera she asked if she could borrow that phone and she proceeded then to fumble with the camera that was on that phone while all in during that moment Ben stepped back went down to a knee produced a ring from his pocket and proposed the moment went just as things were planned with one hilarious exception Susan could not get the camera off of selfie mode. So rather than capturing Ben's proposal, she captured a video of her own excitement and confusion and laughter as her daughter said yes, and her technological expertise said no, all at the same time. And while this story is a humorous one, it reminds me of the way that many of us who claim to be Christ followers practically live our lives. You might refer to us as selfie mode saints. We say we've been redeemed. We say we're following the master, but we can't stop focusing on ourselves so that we can see the world around us and its need. That was the issue for many people who tried to get in the way of Jesus as he conducted his ministry here in the flesh during his first coming to the earth. And we've been working our way through the life of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And today we enter into Luke chapter 17. And as we do that, we find Jesus in the midst of many people who've been living their lives that way. They seem as though they cannot transition their lives out of selfie mode. They can't stop focusing on what advances their own causes and their own initiatives, their own agendas, in order to lend themselves to the world around them. In fact, it appears as if many of these selfie mode saints have no intentions 
of ever shifting the focus off of themselves. And the last reference to time that we have in Luke's gospel before we enter into Luke chapter 17 was back at the beginning of Luke chapter 14, where we saw Jesus had been invited by some Pharisees to a lunch with a lot of prominent individuals, along with this man who was suffering from a swelling body disease known as dropsy. It was on a Sabbath day, and the the Pharisees thought that they had the law all figured out. They thought, this is a way we can trap Jesus. And so they invite Jesus, and they establish the circumstances such that Jesus would have to make the decision, is he going to heal an individual who is suffering with this torturous condition on the Sabbath day? And their eyes were focused on selfie mode. They were focused on themselves. They were concerned about establishing themselves as more righteous than others. They were establishing themselves as more righteous than Jesus. We would never perform a work like that on the day of the Sabbath, they might say. And so they prioritized their own self-righteousness above the needs of this fellow man. Furthermore, we see other things happening in chapter 15, where this selfie mode mentality shows up once again. The Pharisees and the, the, those others who are gathered with them around the table begin to grumble as Jesus allows those who are known sinners, known tax collectors, to come in near to him, to listen to him, to eat with him. It's, it's something that they themselves, in their selfie mode mentality, could never imagine doing. They could never imagine even sitting at the table and sharing a meal with such a vile group of individuals who did not live up to their standards. And in response, Jesus gave them these three parables that summarized. We summarize those under this heading of, of God's lost and found, as we see God's heart for the lost one through the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. Then in chapter 16, we see Jesus trying to turn the disciples and the Pharisees alike away from selfie mode when it comes to their finances and their earthly pursuits. That ultimately led to the parable that we looked at last Sunday as we saw the shocking eternal fate of a rich man who had lived his entire life in selfie mode, pursuing his own passions, living every day in glorious splendor, Luke reveals for us, while refusing to even turn his attention to the beggar who had to be placed at his gate in order to beg for even a crumb from his table. And the fate for that rich man who had been so focused on himself was a shocking fate as we looked last Sunday at the hopes of heaven and the horrors of hell. And that leads us into today's passage where Jesus now turns his focus. He's no longer speaking to the Pharisees, but he turns his focus over to his disciples because he doesn't want them. He doesn't want those of us who follow him. To be stuck in a mode that is only looking out for our own interests. 
And so Jesus uses this opportunity with his disciples in the midst of so many individuals who are stuck in selfie mode to teach them three daily duties that they should give their attention to in order to invest in others and maintain healthy relationships. So let's look at those three daily duties together. We'll be in Luke chapter 17, as I mentioned, starting in verse 1. If you're able, I'd ask that you might stand, that we might honor the reading of God's word together. Hear the word of the Lord. He, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, Forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But he will not say to him, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which ought to have been done. Here ends the reading of God's word. And that phrase, that final phrase, this description of slaves having only done what ought to have been done. Some translations would render that saying, we have only done our duty. That's the basis for kind of what we're describing here as the duties of discipleship that are going to enable us to escape this selfie mode sort of mentality. That's what Jesus is describing here. We, we really live in an age now that's more focused on entitlement than it is on duty. But, but friends, this is something we ought to do. Christ is compelling us towards something that should be a focus of every Christian. And so I want to begin here with the daily duties of a disciple who is shifting out of selfie mode that we find here in these first four verses, and then we'll move on beyond that to look at the final six verses of this passage where we're ultimately going to see that there's a correction from Jesus uh, of kind of the mentality we may have and how we live these duties out. So let's start, first of all, with the daily duties of a disciple shifting out of selfie mode. And here I want you to see Three daily duties for a disciple shifting out of selfie mode. Here's the first one. Avoid causing others to stumble. Avoid causing others to stumble. As Jesus begins this section of teaching, we find at the very outset that he's speaking to his disciples. 
He's speaking to those who committed themselves to following him. And, you know, that could have been a whole slew of individuals because anyone who was following Jesus, anyone who had committed themselves to walking in his ways would be considered a disciple. But we know certainly that this includes the 12 whom he has called and set apart to share this special ministry with him, known as the 12 disciples, or as we read them referred to in verse 5, the apostles. It is they who respond to Jesus, and so certainly they are among this number. And Jesus begins by teaching them. He begins by teaching his disciples. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. And yet he says, woe to him through whom they come. So Jesus is speaking a word of warning. He's speaking a word of woe. And that word that is translated woe here is a word of warning. And and it has to do with the idea of stumbling blocks. So really the first thing we need to kind of investigate here in this passage is what do we mean when we're talking biblically about a stumbling block? Well, the word that's translated stumbling block here in this passage is the Greek word scandalon. It, It has a verb form also known as scandalizo in the original Greek. And this is a word, by the way, from which we derive our English words, scandal, and the verb that goes along with that, scandalize. This word was originally used to describe a movable stick that was placed under a trap. So you can imagine like a big box of a trap and a stick that's kind of placed under that such that when an animal comes and disturbs that and moves the stick, the box falls down, traps the animal. It was that kind of small piece that held the trap up, enabled the trap to work but that word grew to be used to refer to the whole trap or it might be used to refer to any sort of snare which might trap either an individual or an animal and this word was also used to refer to any impediment that might be placed in an individual's way in a deliberate effort to make that individual stumble or fall for example if you were to set up a trip line or to place a large rock along a path where you knew someone was walking because you wanted that individual to stumble, you wanted that individual to fall, you would be establishing a stumbling block. Makes sense to us, right? But this word was also often used in a metaphorical sense. Just as we might say, you know, like we've got something that we're trying to do, but man, somebody's really trying to trip me up in what I'm trying to do. It's a metaphorical way. We're saying someone's trying to hinder us. Someone's trying to get in our way. Someone's trying to keep me from the objective that I have in mind. And so in a similar way, a stumbling block might refer to any person or anything by which an individual is drawn into error, drawn off of the path of pursuing Christ, drawn into sin. That's the sense that Jesus uses here in this passage in Luke chapter 17. Elsewhere, He would describe the Apostle Peter as a stumbling block when that Apostle said that he would not allow Christ to be arrested and persecuted and crucified. Peter was trying to prevent Christ from facing torture and death, and yet Christ knew what his mission was, and it included torture and death. And so he referred to Peter trying to get in his way as a stumbling block. The Bible also refers to false teachers as stumbling blocks, as they teach frivolous or speculative or intentionally deceitful teachings. 
that lead individuals away from the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Also in the Bible, on a couple of occasions, Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, we see the Apostle Paul using this imagery of a stumbling block as he describes this subtle way which disciples can cause those who are weaker in the faith to stumble. And that is something that happens when the disciple lives recklessly in the liberty that he or she has in Christ. We have a responsibility to live out the liberty that we have in Christ. Because as Paul shows, a strong disciple could, for example, participate in an activity that leads a weaker disciple to question truths about God. And the classic example that Paul uses in both of those passages is this example of eating meat which has been sacrificed to idols. Now, a strong disciple is going to know that there is only one God. And therefore, anything that had been sacrificed in some sort of ceremony to a so-called idol would, in fact, be something that had been sacrificed to a false god. But you could imagine how someone comes freshly to the faith in that day and and becomes a Christian and starts to say, okay, I want to walk with Christ. And they're walking with this more mature disciple who knows this and then goes to a place where meat has been sacrificed to idols and people are worshiping and saying, oh, this is going to bring favor into our lives. And as they eat that meat together, the weaker disciple says, well, wait a minute. You know, I thought there was only one God, but maybe there are multiple because we're gathered here and we're joining in this celebration and paul essentially says that we need to be careful with our christian liberty we need to be careful the example we set before others we who are mature in the faith have a responsibility to care for those who are weaker in the faith so that we do not cause them to stumble we do not cause them to fall away In this way, we should be aware that the way that we live our lives is important. And you, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, you can cause individuals to stumble when you live carelessly or when you sin. You can lead them astray without even saying a word. If you're living your life in selfie mode, if you're not living your life in a way that says, what are the impacts of my actions and my decisions going to be on those who are around me, you can cause great danger for other individuals without even saying a word. And so if you're living your life in selfie mode, if if you're simply taking your liberty to the fullest, there's a warning for you here from Christ. And I just want to say this is especially dangerous for parents because parents, our children are watching our actions to see whether or not they line up with our words. If our actions as parents are sinful, then we are potentially causing our children to stumble. Likewise, the world around us, for any of us, is watching the followers of Jesus to see if our actions match our words and many a lost soul has been driven away from the hope of christ because of the faulty example of those who claim to know him but who are living in selfie mode who are living their lives in a manner that constantly lays down stumbling blocks of an inconsistent testimony 
but we can also certainly cause individuals to stumble through the words that we say. Harsh words, frivolous words are often the source of tension that drive individuals away. And so in short, to kind of put a stumbling block in someone's way is to do or to say something that causes another person to trip or to get off of the path of following the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. How could they not come in this present world in which we live? I mean, we have three persistent, powerful enemies in the world and the flesh and the devil, which are constantly scheming together to ensure that stumbling blocks will be a part of everyday life for every one of us. But we cannot, for that reason, just give up. We cannot, for that reason, just allow ourselves to become perpetual sources of stumbling blocks. Jesus makes that clear as he describes the danger of stumbling blocks. He pronounces a woe upon those who set stumbling blocks up. The inevitability of stumbling blocks is no excuse for, for reckless living, he shows us here. In fact, we should do all that we can to avoid sinning against others and leading, in, in, leading them into sin. In verse 2, Jesus proclaims, it would be better for those individuals who cause his little ones to stumble if a millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea than that they would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, the millstone that Jesus describes here would have been a stone of approximately four to five feet in diameter, one foot thick, and weighing thousands of pounds. That stone was used to crush grain. So just imagine having a stone that weighs thousands of pounds that would be tied around your neck and then dropped into the sea. That would be a horrible mafia-style death. But Jesus said that even that would be preferable to the fate that those who set up stumbling blocks should expect to face. In result of their leading others astray deliberately, in result of their reckless lives or their careless words. Now it's helpful for us to pause here for a moment just to say that this does not mean that Christians who cause someone else to stumble will lose their salvation and incur God's eternal wrath. Because listen, our salvation isn't based on your works. Our salvation is based on the work that Christ has done in your place. And so this is not a reason for you to be concerned. Am I going to lose my salvation because I've led individuals astray? If that were the case, none of us could be saved because all of us have sinned in this manner. David sinned in that manner when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he had her husband killed and that caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme in 2 Samuel 12, 14. Peter sinned in this sort of manner when he fell into hypocrisy out of fear and he joined the Judaizers so that Jewish believers and even Barnabas joined him in hypocrisy of eating together and not allowing the Gentiles to eat with them in Galatians chapter 2. But do you know what David and what Peter both did? They both repented of their sins. They both experienced God's forgiveness. 
And that's what we should expect a believer to do. When he sins, when he leads a weaker believer into sin, he confesses that sin. And he does everything that he can to help right the wrong, to help restore the fallen brother or sister that he has led astray. A refusal to do that in light of what Jesus is teaching us here should cause us to question the genuineness of an individual's faith. Is Christ really Lord of their lives if they hear this truth and do not respond in that way? And so this could be some reason why we might examine an individual's faith or even examine our own hearts to say, are we truly walking with the Lord if there has been a moment when you've been a stumbling block but you are not willing to? to restore that sort of wrong. But we should know here that just as parents want to guard their children from people who would harm them, God wants to keep his babes, his little ones, those who are weak, or even those who are of a potential faith. He wants to keep them from harm by those who claim to be his disciples, but who set a bad example of discipleship. And while each person, including a new believer, is responsible for his or her own sin, Jesus makes it clear that there's a sense in which those of us who are more mature in the faith bear responsibility for the babes in the faith. We've got a family that's, that's kind of divided in the age of our kids. And our, our older kids, we expect to help out with the young one. There are some things we're just going to say, He needs someone to be loving on him right now. He needs someone to help take care of this matter or that. And so we deploy our older children to look after him, to care for him. We have an expectation. God has the same sort of expectation for those of us who are more mature in the faith. And so the first daily duty for a disciple shifting out of selfie mode is to avoid causing others to stumble. Here's the second one. Rebuke fellow sinners in love. Jesus goes on to say at the beginning of verse 3, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, Jesus says. And that word that's translated rebuke here from Jesus ultimately conveys a straightforward but also a gentle admonition given by one person who wishes to see another person restored for a wrong that they've done. Rebuking a brother or sister is a matter of telling a brother or sister of some wrong that they have done, of some wrong that you have detected in their lives, so that they can correct that wrong. It's not a matter of telling an individual of something they've done wrong so that you can establish yourself as better than them, or you can really make them feel bad for what they've done restoration is always the proper pursuit of a godly rebuke and a refusal to rebuke someone who sins can ultimately lead that individual away from christ it can lead an individual away from a relationship as well say for example someone sins against you and instead of going to them to talk about the way that they've sinned against you instead of informing them of the wrong they've done against you you decide that you're going to talk to someone else about that wrong or you're just going to be through with them done with them you're going to avoid crossing paths with them because of the wrong they've done to you that my friends is a matter of living in selfie mode 
That's a matter of isolating individuals that I have a wrong against me with. And so I'm going to put myself in my little shell, and I'm not going to let that relationship be restored. That's a mode that's only looking out for your own interests and not the interests of your brother or sister. Now, I just want to ask you, are you harboring a grudge against someone who has done wrong to you without even granting that individual the favor of knowing what they have done wrong? If so, then you are living in selfie mode. And Christ says to you, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And listen, the goal, as I've mentioned, a biblical rebuke is always restoration. If you want your relationship with this individual to be restored, there's no way to settle the sin against you than to get it out in the open. Otherwise, you'll remain imprisoned to your own sinful selfie mode. Now, that does not mean that we need to become hypercritical, pointing out every sin of everyone that we know. Sometimes it can be wiser to overlook sins that do not hinder our relationships with other individuals, that do not hinder their relationships with the Lord, and that likewise do not harm other individuals who might be involved in the matter. Jesus also warns us that we shouldn't be judgmental. So if you feel like you need to rebuke another Christian for a sin, it is wise and it is essential for you to check your attitude and check the motivation behind what you are setting out to do. That, of course, is why Jesus begins this verse by saying, be on your guard. He's saying, look, check your own motives first. See if there's any sin in you First, get your own heart right first. Remove the log out of your own eye first. And then you'll be in a right state to help your brother or your sister with his or her problem. Often in both the church and in our families, we should act with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 2. Likewise, God's Word tells us that love covers a multitude of sins in 1 Peter 4, 8. And we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves, Romans chapter 15, verse 1. So many times we should simply absorb the offenses against us, release the hurt related to those, and pray for the offender that he will grow up in the Lord and learn to be more sensitive toward others. God has shown us grace, and so we should therefore show grace to others. And let's be honest. Like, it's not fun to rebuke someone for a known sin in their lives. In fact, if that's a fun thing for you, if like that's a sport that you enjoy, then you're probably not doing it in the right mindset. But the command to rebuke a sinning brother is the first step in the process of restoring a broken relationship. It's the first step of exiting a selfie mode sort of mentality. And it's a necessary thing if we're going to pursue what Christ commands us in these duties here in his word. There's so much more we could say here, but if you're at odds with another individual because of some sin that you have not yet called out, then I encourage you to look to Matthew chapter 18 
in the biblical example of what Jesus commands in terms of how to confront your brother or your sister in that sin. Because the second daily duty for a disciple, shifting out of selfie mode, is to rebuke fellow sinners in love. Thirdly, forgive repentant sinners without limit. That's what Jesus commands here in the latter half of verse 3. Along with verse 4, he says, If he, that is, if the brother you've rebuked for sinning against you, if he repents, forgive him. The idea behind this word for forgiveness is the idea of dismissing a case from a court of law. It's a matter of letting a wrong go. When you forgive someone, you release an individual from his or her debt. And let's face it, friends, forgiveness is a tough thing to do. But Jesus says we must forgive. In fact, we should do so without limit. But there's a condition on that forgiveness that Jesus gives. And that condition, he says, is if your brother repents, repentance is the condition. Repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of life. We talked about that. Jesus over and over again, even John the Baptist, as this gospel begins, tells individuals to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And over and over again, Jesus says, unless you likewise repent, you shall all perish. There's, there's a call for us in Scripture to repent, to turn away from our sins, to turn away from our selfie-oriented lives, to pursue the one who is worthy of it all. And in our sins, that happens when we turn away from the sin. We acknowledge that God's mindset is right in that sin, and we resolve to turn our lives in a direction that's going to pursue him. But what do we do if one refuses to repent? There's the challenge for us. Well, here's something I'll tell you. When you bear a grudge, you build a prison. And that prison you're building is around yourself. And so it's never a good thing for a Christian to bear a grudge. I had a discussion about this with Dr. Jerry, Gary Chapman. He led a session uh, of local pastors here in our area, and we gathered together uh, up at the Billy Graham Training Center up in Asheville as we went through some, some studies on marriage. But ultimately, he was talking about this idea of forgiveness. He said, ultimately, if you find yourself in a situation where someone has sinned against you and that someone will not repent, that someone will not acknowledge their wrong, that someone will not come to you in search of a restoration of that relationship, he said, ultimately, you've got to release that to the Lord. You've got to give it into his hands. Otherwise, you will find yourself in a perpetual prison. And some people choose to remain there. Some people choose to harbor that grudge to leave that relationship broken that consumes their minds maybe even the other person isn't even thinking about it but you think you've got something over on that person the reality is you're suffocating yourself you're suffocating your testimony you're living in the state in which you are producing stumbling blocks for others how often should we forgive well, Christ makes it clear that we should forgive as often as there is repentance. He says, if your brother sins against you seven times a day and he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Elsewhere, he commands his disciples to forgive 70 times seven. 
He's not telling us to get out your nice little ledger and start making marks every time you forgive someone during the day or during your lifetime. He's showing that this number, this number seven, this number for completeness in the Scriptures calls for us to have relentless, limitless forgiveness of those who sin against us. Jesus is saying, go overboard in your forgiveness. Don't hold back. Followers of Jesus should be extravagant forgivers. And if there's even a hint that the person who has offended you is repentant, don't question his or her motives. Just forgive, 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 forgive. Over and over and over again. And so I ask you, is there anyone that you are refusing to forgive in your life? Friends, you're, you're being crushed in selfie mode living. And I want to encourage you to pursue what the Master commands us to do. And forgive. Forgive limitlessly. Avoid causing others to stumble. Rebuke fellow sinners. Forgive repentant sinners without limit. These are the daily duties of a disciple. Shifting out of selfie mode. But Jesus goes on to reveal some misperceptions that we as disciples might have concerning our shift out of selfie mode. In fact, I see three misperceptions of disciples considering shifting out of selfie mode that I want to show you here briefly. The first is this. You don't need a bigger faith. You just need a big God. The disciples thinking, and probably your own thinking, if you're harboring a grudge against someone, if you're having a difficulty forgiving someone, you're probably thinking, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. Like, I don't think there's power within me in my weak state, my weak frame to do this sort of thing. I need more faith to do this. I need to have a stronger trust in the Lord if I'm going to do this. And so they say, the apostles in this passage say to the Lord in verse 5, increase our faith. But Jesus says, if you had faith like a mustard seed, if you had the tiniest of faith, you would be able to say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now let me just tell you, Jesus isn't teaching us how to start a mulberry orchard. Orchard? How do you say that? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. He's not telling us how to establish one of those in the sea. He's not teaching us how to plant trees in the water. Jesus' response here reveals that we don't need a big faith to escape selfie mode. We just need a big God. And the same is true for each and every one of us who may be seeking to live these principles out, to stop being stumbling blocks to confront and rebuke those who have sinned against us, to forgive those who have sinned against us. Our strength is not in our faith. Our strength is in our great God. And Jesus illustrates that by saying that even if you have the tiniest of faiths, the faith of a mustard seed, you can accomplish what otherwise seems impossible. Now, a mustard seed, by the way, has the average diameter of one to two millimeters. So if you were to kind of look at the thickness of a penny, the thickness of a penny is 1.52 millimeters. So you can think of a, you can think of a, a mustard seed being that on its 
widest part of the sphere of the seed. So you're talking about a tiny little seed here. This is what Jesus uses to describe the sort of faith, that sort of faith is sufficient to do what he's calling us to do in living out the duties of discipleship here. The tree that he describes here, this mulberry tree, the black mulberry tree, was a tree that had such rich root system within it that actually the, the, um, the writings of the day would, would say that they would expect a mulberry tree to remain planted 300 years after the tree had died because of that rich root system. But Jesus says that if you have the faith the size of that mustard seed, you can tell that richly rooted tree to be uprooted and be planted in the sea. I don't know how many of you have ever tried to plant a tree in water. Probably none of you because we don't expect that to work, right? Jesus is showing us that we can ultimately do the impossible if we are pursuing the will of God. What makes the difference? It's not a big faith, but it's a big God. And listen, friends, strong faith in an unreliable person or an unreliable God produces nothing but disappointment. But even the smallest faith in Christ and his promises will never lead to disappointment because he has said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so it's not so much a great faith that's required as faith in a great God. And the Bible is clear. Small faith in a great God can immediately move both trees and mountains, as Jesus uses in another gospel example. And the person who has the smallest amount of real faith becomes the instrument of God's unlimited power. Now, it's helpful for us to realize this is not Jesus teaching us that, you know, there's some magical formula that's going to enable us to do whatever we want to do. Remember, we're escaping selfie mode. We're putting our own ambitions behind us so that we can say whatever Christ calls us to do, we're going to do that. And faith will enable you to do what Christ calls you to do. And so this is not a matter of magic to control God. Faith is not that instrument faith is not a matter of presuming our will on god but if it's god's plan and you're working according to that plan let me tell you friends expect big things he can enable you to stop your stumble producing ways he can enable you to rebuke your fellow sinners he can enable you to forgive the one that you hold that grudge against as a matter of fact, Paul writes about this in Colossians 3. He says, So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has complained against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive others. You see, friends, the source, the fuel for what we live out is what Christ has shown to us. So why should we refuse to be a stumbling block? Because Jesus came and showed us the way to greener pastures. Why should we rebuke? Because Jesus 
hasn't left us in the dark regarding our sin. He's come to call out the sin in our lives, challenging us to find His mercy and His forgiveness. Why should we forgive without limit? Because there's no limit to our own forgiveness in Christ. Can you just imagine for a moment? Imagine if you sin and you confessed your sin according to 1 John chapter 9 and God revealed to you and said, Sorry, that, my friend, is one time too many. We can't imagine that. You know why? Because it's never too many for our God. His grace is always in ample supply for you. Infinite. Forgiveness is impossible, but it is Him possible. That is, He can enable it. You don't need a big faith, just a big God. That's the first misperception of disciples concerning shifting out of selfie mode. Here's the second. You shouldn't expect an immediate reward. That's the example that Jesus gives in verses 7 through 8. He says, which of you having a slave, plowing a field, or tending sheep will say to him when he's come in from the field... Come immediately and sit down. No, that slave has something else to do. That slave has something else that's a part of his normal responsibility. So he goes on to say in verse 8, but he will not, but he, will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may drink and eat. So the example here is the slave working in the field. Now, in Jesus' day, slaves were actually generally better off than most freed men. Freed men tend to be day laborers. They tend to be sustained day to day from hand to mouth. Slaves had security. They had a place to live. They had their needs taken care of. They lived in their master's house, and he met their needs. This, by the way, was nothing like the sort of slavery that has been characteristic of our nature, of our nation, this horrific race-based way of demeaning individuals to consider them less than valuable than those who owned them and so we're not advocating that here by any stretch of the imagination but the slave's responsibility was to serve his master and and, and as a matter of fact we read some historical sources estimate that two-thirds up to two-thirds of the roman empire was living in slavery at some point uh, during this era. I said, like, that, that's almost equated with the, an employment rate, so to speak. You could think of that as being kind of the average situation of individuals living in employment. But the slave's responsibility was to serve his master. That was his normal expectation. And when you take up Jesus as your Lord, as we read in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, you're essentially saying, I'm going to be a slave of you Christ I'm going to live my life according to your plans obeying what you command me to do and if you're doing that you don't do that for temporary rewards you don't check out because you think at some point well I've done enough and I'm just going to go on cruise control from now on as some Christians seem to do you don't lose heart when one broken relationship after another needs to be restored and say, you know, I think I've given all I can give at this point. While there is still work to do, we must not rest. And so the wonder here, the wonder is that Jesus does something, he says, you wouldn't expect a normal master to do of his slave. 
Matter of fact, it's something we looked at back in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. He says, Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. This is Jesus, our Lord, talking about how he is going to serve his slaves. He says, whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. And so the good thing for us to remember is that while we may not expect temporary rewards here on earth, we can expect eternal rewards because that's what God has promised. I heard of a missionary husband and wife who years ago were returning from Africa after a long missionary stint of multiple years spent serving individuals on that continent. This was during the days of President Teddy Roosevelt. This was back before the president had his private jet. There was no Air Force One. There were no private flying travels. But Roosevelt had been on a big game hunting expedition in Africa. While these missionaries, on the other hand, had spent years investing themselves in the lives of strangers in the hope of leading them to the gospel. Well, it just so happened that these three individuals were taking the same ship bound for the homeland. And as they boarded, crowds had gathered and a band was playing in order to honor the president. But no one, not a single person, came to say goodbye to these missionaries. And the man said to his wife, Isn't it strange, dear? Here we are. We've given our lives into the service of God. We spent years in Africa. We've endured many hardships. We've lost a couple of our children. And we buried them out here. It's been very difficult, but nobody really cares, do they? I mean, look at all this big celebration that goes on when the president returns from a big game hunting expedition. But nobody really cares whether we have done anything for God or not. Well, all the way across the Atlantic, this missionary grew more bitter in his thought. He told his wife, I'll bet when we get to New York, there will be another band there waiting for the president. But there will be nobody there to welcome us. And sure enough, things came to pass just as he expected. Their ship pulled into the New York Harbor. It was greeted by a band playing the president's favorite songs. The city's highest officials came out to welcome him home. But the missionary couple left the ship unnoticed and they proceeded to a rundown apartment that would provide them temporary housing. This man was utterly crushed. And so he said to his wife, this just isn't fair. Here we are. We don't have any money. We don't know who's going to take care of us. We don't know where we're going. God has promised us great things, but this doesn't look too great to me. We've given him everything we've got, and what has he done for us? But just look at all that the president receives just for going hunting. Why is this so unfair? Well, the missionary's wife had a word of wisdom to say to him. She said, dear, I know this all doesn't feel fair, but you're headed in the wrong direction. You're growing bitter towards God. Why don't you spend a little time alone talking to him about it and see if he can put your spirit to rest? And so he did. He went in, he knelt by the bed alone for a long time, but when he came out, his wife could see that something had changed about his spirit. He seemed refreshed. He seemed renewed. And so she asked her husband, what did you hear from the Lord? And he said, I poured out my whole story to the Lord. I told him that I thought it was so unfair, and especially 
that when we came home, the president got this big welcome, but no one cared about us. I told him that he was treating us all wrong, but you know what the Lord said to me? He said it was almost as though he was leaning down and speaking to me, saying to me, child, you're not home yet. Friends, that's the reality for any of us who are living for Christ. It may be that when we strive to live for him, when we strive to live a duty of discipleship, that we find barrier after barrier. We find complication after complication. We may find that it leaves us in a wreck of a state. But we're not home yet until we reach that golden shore. Finally, you can't outgive the grace of God. That's ultimately the essence of what Jesus talks about in verses 9 and 10. When do you say thank you to someone for something that they've done? It's when they've shown you grace, is it not? But look, there's never going to be a situation where we're on the positive side of the grace equation when it comes to God. He's always going to outgrace us. His grace, His forgiveness, His mercy for us is always going to be more than we deserve. That's what Jesus essentially drives home here in verses 9 and 10. He says he does not thank the slave because he has done the things which are commanded, does he? That is, there's no grace that the servant has earned. He says, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. The slave doesn't get thanked because he did what was commanded him to do. He hasn't shown grace. He's only done his duty. And so it is in the Christian life. When we do what is commanded us, we should realize that we've only done what we ought to have done. We never get the upper hand on the balance of God's grace. And friends, that grace is so rich for you. That grace, that love, that mercy is in such an abundant supply for you. Are you struggling with this? Are you struggling with forgiving someone? Are you struggling with confronting someone you know is heading down a path that's going to lead to destruction for them or that's destroying your relationship with them? Are you struggling with confronting the evils of your past which maybe have led someone else astray? Friends, there is ample mercy in the God of creation for you. In fact, he's manifested that mercy. He's manifested that forgiveness in the coming of his own son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth so that you might know of his love and his forgiveness and his desire to lead you in the right paths. And so, friends, I compel you, if you're struggling with an issue of forgiveness, if you're struggling with an issue of turning away from the selfie mode in your life, Turn to the one who did not hold on to his selfie mode, who did not hold on to his glory, who entered the world in the flesh, who became man so that he might reconcile you to God. Find his mercy, find his forgiveness, find his strength with even just a little mustard seed of faith. It's available to you. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, these are difficult truths we must confess. Living in this sort of way that turns away from our selfish ambitions, our selfie mode sort of life, Lord, is a tough thing to do. 
But God, it's not something that you have been unwilling to exemplify for us. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to dig deep into the treasures of your grace, to dig deep into what you've so richly supplied for us in your own forgiveness, that we, O Lord, might find the encouragement, the example to be a forgiving people, just as we've been forgiven. That, that we might be a people who keep our eyes out for others and have a compassion and a heart for success for those around us and not just for ourselves. Father, if there's someone who needs to know that heart, who needs to receive that power, who needs to find the hope of the gospel that is the wellspring of living in this other-centered sort of way, then, Father, I pray you draw them to yourself by the power of your gospel in these moments. And may we all, O Lord, draw richly from the well of grace you supply as we seek to live out the duties which you call us to live out as disciples. I pray it in Jesus' name.